him up, Mr. Scott. Permission to come aboard, sir. Welcome to Now Playing's Star Trek Retrospective Series. We here at Now Playing will be reviewing all of the previous installments of the Star Trek movie franchise, going at warp speed towards the new J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie coming to theaters May 8, 2009. Bringing you the perspective of a Star Trek novice, a casual Star Trek movie fan, and a former hardcore Trekker, we will be providing spoiler-filled critiques of this long-running movie franchise. Transmit now. Today we're talking about Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, starring William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, and Ricardo Montalban, directed by Nicholas Meyer. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. I'm Stuart, and I'm still in L.A. This is Arnie. <laughs> Are you turning into Kirk, Arnie? <laughs> and should I do some character? Maybe I could be Spock. Damn it, Arnie, I'm a host, not a... Well, we have to podcast. <laughs> you are not logical, sir. <laughs> okay, so it's just really kind of funny. You did... Arnie went with Kirk. <laughs> Stuart went with Spock. I went right to McCoy. That's freaky. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Apparently, we have our little roles. All right. Should we do row, row, yo, your boat? <laughs> Maybe yeah, for five. Movies. Yeah. yeah. For me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. So I guess we should start off with a brief plot synopsis in case there are those people out there who haven't seen the movie. Arnie, would you like to grace us with a brief plot synopsis of The Wrath of God? Well, no, actually. I think I'm going to give you a brief plot synopsis of an episode of the original series called Space Seed, which aired in the first season. Please do, because if this is where Khan was introduced, it holds burning questions for me. Fantastic. In the first season of Star Trek, and I don't know why this episode out of all of them was picked, but it worked out. The Enterprise runs across a sleeper ship of inhabitants from the 1990s, the early 90s at that, Earth's last world war, the Eugenics War. They awaken one of the captives, and it turns out to be Khan Noonien Singh, who was ruler of Eurasia in the late 90s after the Eugenics Wars. He was a semi-benevolent dictator who promoted his society as being without war, but it was also without freedom. Upon being awakened in the 23rd century, he realized that humans still had not evolved, and he was their superior, being bred for genetic superiority, being very strong, very intelligent. And thus he tries to take over the Enterprise and turn their crew to be his servants so he could conquer the galaxy now instead of the world. However, Kirk defeats him, and rather than send him to jail, Kirk decides it would be better to leave him and his crew on the planet SETI Alpha 5. Inspired by Khan's ship, which was named the Botany Bay, thinking how the Botany Bay was left in Australia, he leaves Khan and his people on SETI Alpha 5 along with a traitorous crew member, Marla MacGyvers, a historian on board the Enterprise who fell in love with Khan while he was there. And so playing kind of God, Kirk left Khan and his people on SETI Alpha 5, dropped all charges against Khan and let him there to start a new society. Interesting. Hmm. Where is the traitorous crew member in the new movie? I believe she is the dead wife Khan refers to. 
Oh, right. Now, so Khan takes this to be exile as opposed to a granting of a world to rule. Correct, because SETI Alpha 5 wasn't exactly a paradise. And he quotes Milton when he's given the planet that it's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Although I believe it was actually, it sounded like it was kind of nice, and then something interplanetary happened. that SETI Alpha it, 6 exploded, and SETI Alpha 5 quickly went from a habitable but not great planet to hell. I hate when that happens. A planet blows up. <laughs> That sucks. Yeah, totally. Can someone tell me, please, why the planet blew up? Well, there was a Death Star that just happened to be going by. and Ah, yes, of course. <laughs> now, the plot summary for this movie, picking up where Space Seed left off, but we are 15 years later. And so that puts us about 10 years after the first movie, which I find very interesting that they decided to actually age the cast now. So we're really 15 years from the when the series aired and the cast is their original age versus Star Trek one when they were all supposed to be the same age approximately that they were in the series. There was no way they could pull that off. There's not enough lighting filters and uh, makeup <laughs> to, to make us believe that they are only uh, a couple years beyond the TV show. You know that. I know that. Shatner vehemently disagreed and said with makeup he could keep playing a young Kirk all through the 80s. Okay. <laughs> well, while we're talking about this really quick, before you finish the plot summary, I thought they skipped part one completely out of continuity because it was, if you do the math, it was actually 15 years since the original series was on the air when they keep on mentioning 15 years, 15 years, 15 years. And they also mention that the Enterprise itself is 20 years old as a ship. So I thought they just glassed over everything of part one. But you're saying it actually is in continuity? It is an official continuity. V'ger did happen. Now, Star Trek continuity is ever-changing. It's as fluid as a river. <laughs> but Well, okay. It, but The movies and TV show take precedence above anything else. Well, of course. But you have the next three movies, in this one included, are all linked together, which is why I thought they just skipped over part one. What I find interesting, and I hope we'll discuss this, is this movie starts exactly where part one started. Kirk is once again a planet-bound admiral. Exactly. And Spock, all right, he's not off on Kalinar, but he's a captain of trainees, again, planet-bound. And we've got McCoy. All right, McCoy, we don't quite know what he's doing. He's just kind of hanging around. But we are brought to a very similar situation in this movie as we are in part one. It was very... Like they were aping themselves in this case. I like the fact that Uhura and Sulu just never, ever get promoted. They're just bypassed by jobs always. They're, they're Literally, the beginning of the movie, their big job is to play dead in a reenactment scenario of, uh, <laughs> of a suicidal mission. I'm like, that is pretty low that you got nothing better to do than to fall over. Well, I believe that Sulu is promoted in this one, and he's attaché to the Admiral because he's going to pilot the Enterprise on a special mission. He's not normally the Enterprise's pilot anymore. But Uhura, yeah, she's still doing the same thing. So, Arnie, I guess this is a great opportunity since we're talking about the beginning of the movie. If you want to throw a plot synopsis in, now's the time. Really briefly. Okay. In the tiniest of nutshells. 
Chekhov is first officer aboard the Reliant, which is seeking out a planet that can be terraformed using the new Genesis torpedo, which is a scientific discovery that will take an inhospitable planet and within seconds turn it into a lush, vegetative, habitable region. While searching for this planet, Chekhov ends up on SETI Alpha 5, which he believes to be SETI Alpha 6, not knowing about the planetary explosion that knocked SETI Alpha 5 out of its orbit, where he is discovered by Khan. Khan puts little bugs in his ear and his captain's ear to make them susceptible to mind control, and then goes after both the Genesis weapon and Kirk. Blaming Kirk for his 15 years of solitude on SETI Alpha 5 and the death of his wife on that planet. Kirk is lured into a trap and Khan basically kicks his butt. In the end, a major battle occurs. Kirk triumphs. Khan, in a last act of vengeance, ignites the Genesis weapon, thinking it will destroy them both. Kirk escapes only after Spock sacrifices himself to fix the warp drive engine and save the rest of the ship. Really, not a lot happens except a lot of battling back and forth, which is what makes this movie great. It's not an intricate plot. It's, you know, uh, it's a brawl. It's an intership brawl. Revenge is a dish best served cold, and it is very cold in space. A classic <laughs> line and a perfect way to sum up this episode. Now, just my opinion of this movie, I think this movie is great, though. I am jazzed to watch it. I want to give a piece of trivia and then explain why the trivia is important. This is the first Star Trek item where Gene Roddenberry was backburnered. He was blamed for the lackluster returns of the first movie, so they basically made him, quote, executive consultant, unquote, and every objection he raised was ignored, and they brought in some new people from the creative department, and they breathed life into Star Trek, and without all the hoity-toity morality, they made a kick-ass action film. And that feels very true to me. I, I really felt like Roddenberry's fingerprints didn't feel as heavy on this one. I associate Roddenberry with the sort of egg-headed quality of Star Trek, that he really likes to make parables and make sort of a preaching about the issue of his uh, moment. And in this one, it really does feel much more like a straightforward action movie. To its credit, I think Star Trek could use a little bit more of this from time to time. It tends to be a little stilted for me, and I always appreciate the more action-driven episodes of Next Generation or the more action-oriented movies. I also want to add on top of that that what also makes this movie great was when they were conferring and, and planning and scheming. It was really fun to see Kirk use his mind over this incredibly intelligent other beings. So yes, it led to action and blowing things up and this and that. But what also was fun for me was the outsmarting and the and the canniness of the characters. I thought that was a lot of fun. I agree with that. I think Shatner was still acting back then. He slowly, as the series progresses, devolves into self-parody. And here, his staccato delivery is fully intact, but it works, and it makes Kirk a believable character. And in having him have this midlife crisis, because much of this movie is about Kirk feeling old, having him have this midlife crisis but still able to rise to this challenge makes him a likable character, which at many times Kirk is not necessarily likable. True. Uh, my favorite Kirk line in this one has got to be um, right at the beginning. I mentioned how they have this training session where it's a, basically a suicide mission and all the old crew pretends to die. Um, I have to I have to give this to the, all the Trekkies listening. It's the Kobayashi Maru. 
Yes. Oh, whatever. <laughs> um, and uh, and Bones asks him how he thought his death scene was, and Kirk responds, "I'm not a drama critic." Uh, (laughs) who didn't laugh at that moment indeed and not much of an actor either but i agree with you this may be one of his better moments in front of the camera what was also fun if you want to go on great kirk moments for me the scene when they are outsmarting khan with the shields going down and he puts his back to the screen and he confers with spock and spock's like one step ahead of him and the banter between the two of them is so subtle and so great and then khan barks at kirk and he turns around and says uh, i'm getting for you now khan like like he's a librarian with his glasses on i thought that was a really funny delivery uh, it's coming up now khan you like, know what i like about that scene is kirk goes not as if i'm giving orders well, that is technically an order. <laughs> <laughs> that scene was one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie. Before we step over this part, I want to say that this is actually, I have seen this movie so many times more than any other Star Trek movie, but this is the first time I ever sat down on purpose to watch it from start to finish, and I don't think I have ever seen the Kobayashi Maru opening scene before, because I know they mention it throughout the movie, but I don't remember watching, and how can you forget Uhura and and Sulu jumping as if they were in the 60s (laughs) television show in that first scene, so it was really kind of fun for me to experience it fully for the first time, even though I know this movie very, very well. Not only that, but it's kind of important thematically. They start out right away talking about what a captain does when they have to face death. And truly, that's bringing you right to the uh, climax. I don't want to go into it right now, but Arnie's already spoiled it. Spock dies. And this is sort of a great way of setting up how to talk about how Kirk deals with death. Because there is a subplot, or, or it runs throughout the story, well, how did Kirk handle this test? It's inferred for a long time that he found a solution that no one else had ever done before. And the solution was he cheated. They bring up in this movie, and I think later on as well, that Kirk is adept at cheating death, and this is the first time he couldn't do so. And you brought up the Kobayashi Maru was literally he cheated, which was funny, but it was also a really... Well, I guess it goes into my whole thing about how well the screenplay is crafted, that things they put at the beginning come up at the end. And we know we talked about this in Friday the 13th a lot, when it did and did not work, like we didn't work with the locket in the latest movie, but it did work with the I'm a psychology student. Well, here it worked with the glasses. They had a great moment at the end with the glasses. It worked with the Kobayashi Maru. It worked with death. It worked with the old and young stuff. There's so many elements that they just put in the beginning of the movie that actually paid off. And it really was such a well-crafted screenplay in addition to the action, in addition to everything else that we all love about this movie, the screenplay needs to get some credit because it's a really solid, solid script. Absolutely. It's, it's the script that makes the movie. It's certainly not the cheesy effects because really the effects in this movie are atrocious, but it's all script. When I was a little kid and I was watching this on cable, because this thing was the first Trek movie I ever saw because it was constantly on cable, when those little bugs squirm into those ears, it creeped me out. And this time, it looked like a model of the ear you used to have in high school health class when they were describing <laughs> what the ear looked like, or biology class. It was such a fake-looking ear. But you know what it, was... it reminds me of? You know that scene in Terminator 1 where Arnold like plucks his eye out and you yeah. can immediately tell when it's the Arnold puppet? Yes. <laughs> this was the Chekhov puppet. <laughs> Since you're talking about childhood stories, we all know I'm this huge Trekkie, right? But Or I was. But my first exposure to Star Trek ever was seeing this in theaters when I was seven. 
I don't know if you guys ever had the Stuart. I know you lived in my town, so I don't know if you did this, though. They had a summer movie program where you'd buy passes and the kid could go see a movie a week the whole summer. And it was like a dollar and they just show various kid friendly movies. And somehow Star Trek 2 got put in that rotation. And at first I thought it was Star Wars and it certainly wasn't. And it was talky-talky, and I was kind of bored. Then the bugs went into the ear, and I made the person who took me leave. I couldn't take it. I could not take the bugs in the ear. Oh. So we left the theater. I loved horror and anything gross when I was a kid, so this one sold me right away. And I, I would like to say my childhood film, Aliens, appears to have an influence on this. If the first movie kind of took a little bit too much from 2001, I felt like this one, in some of the setup, when Chekhov and uh, his captain, Terrell, Terrell, something like that? Terrell. Um, Terrell, beams down onto the planet... It's very much like the setup of the Ridley Scott film. And in fact, they approach this container with the sand that's moving underneath. And I'm like, ooh, something's going to pop right through like an alien egg. And, and it just felt like that the way that those aliens like crawled into the skin was very much like the, uh, the Giga monster. Since we're in that scene, let's talk a little bit about Khan, should we? First of all, I'd like to go on the record. According to Wikipedia, that is his real chest. You read my mind. Holy cow. I was going to say to you, guys, do you think that's a chess piece? You say it's his chest, huh? Apparently, that outfit he wore was worn to show off Ricardo Montalban's fantastic physique. And it has long been said that that was a fake chest. But according to what I did in my research, that was all Ricardo. I don't believe it. I don't believe it either. I'll tell you why. I'm going to go on record right now. It was a plastic chest. And they, to humor Ricardo, they put out PR material that said it was real. But that is not Ricardo's chest. And I'll tell you why I agree with you, Stuart, because he has that necklace around his neck, right? And so his neck is older and his body is not. And he hit it well, but I thought for a couple of shots, you could see where his neck ended and his necklace covering the, the seam began. Also, look at the chest in the movie. Either he has the world's greatest posture or the, the, the pecs don't move at all. The pecs don't move. No, the pecs don't move. They don't breathe and, uh, either. He doesn't, when he's heaving, I don't really remember. Now, I could be wrong if someone wants to sit here and watch. You're not slowly. wrong. You're not wrong. Let, let me just say, at a couple points, I could see under the necklace. The necklace did move, and I could see like where the neck and the chest were around the necklace seam. And I was looking. I swear I was looking. I could not find a fault. I kept thinking the necklace is hiding the seam. I looked, and there's a couple places where you can see around the necklace and i didn't see a scene well it's funny we're all thinking the same thing <laughs> yes you know what montaban is so good it doesn't even matter i love him even with the fake chest he's awesome in this movie he's camping up a storm and he does it just right he is as equal to kirk in the overtopness and it just works great he's great you know, so, I don't know if he's camping it up, but it works for me. It draws me in. He is charismatic and insane and intense. You know, I don't see this as camp. I see this as high action film. Maybe in your mind, they all go into camp at that point. But I think Shatner and Montalban here both, you are right. They're equals and they're just very intense and theatrical and I don't know, again, why they picked Khan out of Mothballs, but man, they couldn't have done better than Maltabon. You know, and I just want to add on top of that, to me, it was the presence that he had. He commanded your attention every moment he was on the screen. 
even when he was sharing the screen with other people. And that is just a testament to him. You did not once think of Ricardo Montalban, the actor. You didn't think of Fantasy Island at all when you were watching this thing. You thought he was Khan. He is Khan. Although I would like to add, in case the casual fans wonder, he really did play Khan back in the 60s show. He was that episode's guest star. I don't think he was a star at the time. He was just the hired actor to play that role for that episode. Another new character to this movie was the new Vulcan, Lieutenant Savick, played by introducing <laughs> Kirstie Alley of Cheers fame and, I guess, Jenny Craig commercials. For <laughs> <laughs> Let's not forget Veronica's closet. <laughs> I wish I could. Didn't and she have some show about being fat recently? Fat actress. Fat actress. <laughs> yes. Well mm. done, Stuart. Well done. So what's interesting is about her, she was the character in the beginning being tested by the Kobayashi Maru. And throughout the movie, she was kind of the newbie asking the questions we need to be asking for different things here and there. And I really felt that she got the Vulcan down. I believe she was a Vulcan. I actually liked her portrayal of the character. She nailed it. I thought she did a good job. The thing that strikes you about Allie, particularly back in that day, are her eyes. She has this really intense stare. There's something about the blueness of her eyes, and of course they have the the fake eyebrows. And unlike the last Trek movie, those new characters added nothing, and in fact were very distracting. I really felt like she really joined the team and was really an appropriate foil for Spock and for the rest of the crew. She was needed for the story, and she delivered. And I don't think Kirstie Alley was ever as intriguing or as alluring as an actress as she was after that. I mean, she became sort of a comedic actress after Star Trek II. And this was the only time I can really think of her as being exotic and a little bit sexy. Let me go on record. I hate Kirstie Alley. Hate her. She ruined Cheers. She ruined Look Who's Talking. And you'd really think it would take a lot to ruin Look Who's Talking. And she is an insufferable personality when I see her on screen, except in this movie. She really does work in this movie. I don't know why she works so well, if it's because maybe there's no ego there or maybe the cocaine was really good that day. But she Oof. <laughs> she's the one who said she had the coke problem, not me. Harsh. Harsh. <laughs> I wow. Wanna, I want to go on record by saying that I disagree with you on Cheers. I think she breathed new life into that show, and the reason it ran for 11 years, one of the big reasons was her. As far as Look Who's Talking, I can't believe you actually said that something ruined Look Who's Talking. <laughs> I was going to make a joke by saying I thought she was quite sultry in summer school, so that's fine. <laughs> but anyway. All I know is if Shelley Long ever appeared as a Vulcan, I would set my phasers on kill. She couldn't have done it. She couldn't have done it. Kirsty does it, and she she did better on Cheers than Shelley Long would have done in the Star Trek universe. So I think we should leave I'll it give at her that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> and I want to point out, you know, one of Stewart's favorite characters actually gets something to do in this movie. Oh yes, Chekhov. I was very proud to see that they finally gave one of those supporting characters something cool to do. Unfortunately, he's taken advantage of it. Is it a running joke that Chekhov always gets hurt? Because I always feel like yes. Chekhov is in pain. Yeah. Well, according to Walter Koenig, it is. I didn't notice it until he called Star Trek II Chekhov Screams again. <laughs> <laughs> so I do feel bad for the man that is, you know, the last time he got burnt. And this one, he's got worms in his ears and he's screaming in pain. And eventually he passes the worm, but it looked it looked rather painful um but wow. at least you know yeah he's on a different crew and he has a little bit of element of danger to him and yeah it was cool to see him hold up a phaser and do something pretty badass mr trek guru why is Chekhov not with the enterprise and with this other crew 
It's been 15 years. You expect them all just to not get promoted? You said it was 10 years since the crew was in the first movie. Okay, it's been 10 years. But the crew was disbanded from the Enterprise, so they all were grounded after that last mission, after they all got back on the ship to go explore V'ger. They all got... Actually, no. They had a whole bunch of missions after V'ger. Oh. When Kirk took the Enterprise and went off, and I guess Starfleet was okay with it that time. See, there's a giant missing link between that movie and this movie. In the beginning of this movie, having the whole conversation about you should never have accepted promotion, all that kind of stuff, and getting the band back together, as you put it, Arnie, last episode of Now Playing, it seemed like they're completely disregarding the first movie. And there's no, not one link in this movie to that movie. Why would they do that again? It doesn't make any sense. It's like they did it this time, only better. It's kind of like the Evil Dead 2 when they repeat the first movie and the first half of the second movie. I, I agree. However, I defy your statement that there is nothing of part one in this movie because some of the shots of part two are taken right out of part one. Did you not notice this? <laughs> when they're approaching the Enterprise, they use the same freaking footage. I thought okay. that it might be the same. Yeah, It I is, yes. Yeah, it looked familiar. And Space Station Regula is the space station from the last movie turned over. <laughs> I think we recommended that everyone skip the first movie. That is like taking like the best part of the last movie and just, you know, we'll go from here. I mean, I don't have a problem with it not having continuity with the last movie because I don't want to remember the last movie. I agree. Yeah. Do you really want to have a whole bunch of extraneous scenes of them talking around? Last time we were all together. Remember V'ger? <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> it, it doesn't matter because time has passed. They've grown older. Chekhov is Commander Chekhov now. It works. I, I'm sure that if you want to know in some of the literally I counted today, there are 475 novels encompassing the Star Trek universe. If you want to know, Brock, I can look up which titles you should go read, and then when we talk about part three, you can tell us exactly what happened every day of Kirk and Chekhov's life from V'ger till now. All I know is that Uhura is either a deadbeat or sister needs a break because <laughs> she's the one that never is doing anything different than answering the phone. <laughs> Not fair. It's my hope that she gets to do something cool in, in one of these movies, one of these days. I can't remember much of the other old generation movies, but it's my hope that uh, now that Chekhov has done something cool and Sulu will eventually get a ship, she is given something to do. Patience, my friend. Patience. That's where I'm going to leave it. I guess it's legendary on the show that Kirk always bagged the babes, right? That was sort of what he did on the old show. That's my impression, was he was always betting down. Oh, yes. Green, green women. women. Right, yes. <laughs> so this time we get to meet one of his old flames and find out that he's got a little bastard. <laughs> What's that about? Well, when a man and a woman really like each other, they get <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, have we ever met this Carol Marcus before no. and or ever heard anything about the son before, David? No. Mm. I was hoping that maybe that this was uh, alluded to on the series, but no, huh? Not at all. I mean, first of all, keep in mind, this was the swing in 60s. Kirk didn't have kids. There were no STDs, no children. Kirk could bang every babe and continue to plunder the galaxy. He was that hero. And spread his space seed. Exactly. I mean, there, there's retcons because in the very first episode of Star Trek, there's a reference to some blonde that Kirk hooked up with. And so people who really want continuity say she's the blonde. Why give Kirk a son? What did that add to the story other than I, I suppose there's balance in he loses a friend but gains a son? Is that why give Kirk a son? In my mind, with the theme of Kirk feeling old in the beginning, and then he says the last line is, I feel young, I think 
giving David to him gives him a chance to feel that young, even though obviously he has a grown son as opposed to a boy, a little boy, that there are things in his life he has yet to experience, that sort of thing. That's what I took it to be. Because they do mention him and Carol and that interesting scene in the Genesis cave, how David is basically showing him the life he chose not to have or the life he he did not want to have. And now he has a chance to do that. Now he has a chance to have and experience a son. Yeah, and I would chime in just a little more saying that this movie really felt like Kirk having to take responsibility for things. He had cheated death, he had gotten by by never having to face death, and in this one he had to face his womanizing past, and he had to face death. And I think it works dramatically for him. He has to acknowledge the son that uh, he, up to this point, he never had. What's your take on it, Arnie? I wasn't really sure. I didn't know where they were going with it. I didn't get anything out of it. I don't think he feels young because of David. I would disagree on that. I think that perhaps he feels more reconnected to life. Perhaps David is a part of the reason he feels young. I think there's a lot more to it than that. I think it goes back a lot to the line that is said repeatedly in the movie of how you deal with death is at least as important of how you deal with life. And having faced death and being able to deal with death perhaps made him feel young because it was something new, uh, kind of like Quentin Tarantino's diatribe on what Like a Virgin is about, I suppose. Mm. He hadn't had anything new for so long that dealing with death was something new and he was having to deal with that. But... Well, I thought it was interesting that they sort of made that have consequence. He can't just get away from his past in this one. And that, in fact, she's key to the plot because they're working on what I think is a really cool plot device, the Genesis machine. It is a very cool concept. The video, which I thought was a really great exposition, right up there with Jurassic Park's Mr. DNA. First CGI ever in film. You could tell it looked really cool at the time. Maybe not so much now, but it looked cool at the time. (laughs) But the thing that's interesting about it is it's not just a life giver, it's also a reset button. I mean, they also make mention of the fact that if you drop it on a world that already has life forms on it, those get wiped out. And so this thing really has the quality of almost like a a nuclear device. And it was the 80s, and that was a big theme of the 80s. We were always dealing with bomb scare and nuclear and should we get rid of the bomb. This kind of had that quality to it, that this was really both a life giver and a weapon of mass destruction. Very true. It definitely, I believe, tapped into that. And that's why they kept calling it, you know, the Genesis torpedo versus anything else. Mm. I don't know. I mean, if you think about it, any type of thing you do, though, could be interfering with natural evolution of some species millions of years down the road. I guess it's only different if you know you're using it on a populated area. Right. Some of the science is not entirely clear. We don't know how they pick what grows and what doesn't, if in fact they do. But anyway, I just thought it was an interesting way of giving Kirk and Khan something to fight over and something that really had some major life and death consequences. I want to talk about a couple of things that I think this movie did astonishingly well also compared to the first movie. And I'm going to start with the uniforms. Gone are those gray pajamas. And (laughs) now we've got these red militaristic outfits, which actually everybody I think thinks are great because they last for as many movies as there are original trilogy characters now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It hides paunch for one thing. (laughs) 
you know, there's something about the way that it folds out that Kirk has. It's like, oh, that's not fat. That's just like underlayers. You know, I, I think it carefully disguises mesomorphic body types. And yeah, it looks tough. It looks cool. Unlike those last uniforms, they really look like they are in some kind of military or federation outfit as opposed to, you know, getting hand towels at the spa. I also really liked the score of this movie. I mm-hmm. thought that it was phenomenal. And Stuart, I remember if you want to flash back to 1988, I think it was, you actually had the sheet music for this and we programmed a MIDI version of it into my computer in GW Basic. Oh, you know it. I so want to talk about the score because James Horner is awesome. He also did the Aliens theme. He did a theme to Glory. He's done a lot of great movie music. And I think this must have been one of his earliest roles. He took what was coming off of a great score, one of the best things about the first one, and he ran with it. It's a great score. And I, yes, I did play it on piano. I had the sheet music. And I was all about the score. Go, James Horner. This is the actually the first Star Trek score that I bought because I love it so much. The first one is good, but this one, the entire score for me is just fantastic, especially that opening theme. Even though I love the opening theme from the first movie, and I love its use for the next generation. I never loved the music from part one. Is it iconic? Yes, only because of its use in Star Trek The Next Generation. But I never loved it. I never thought it was musically something I'd want to listen to other than when I'm watching a movie. This, I really feel, is, again, a great soundtrack and one of the only ones that when I left Trektum did I keep in my CD collection. This and Part 3, which I believe is also Horner. Maybe we do this now. Should we talk about Spock dying? How do people feel about that? I mean, it's kind of hard to know. Seeing it now, we all know that he's going to come back to life. But had he not, had they stopped with Star Trek Two, how would we feel about the way that this sort of writes out the character? I think it worked. I think it was a heroic death. It was honorable. I think it was a good death without being gratuitous. It wasn't telegraphed the whole movie. It was something that happened, and I believe that it was leaked to fans that it was going to happen beforehand because of an early script. I don't know how things leaked pre-internet. I'm Starlog Magazine, Arnie. I actually had those issues. <laughs> I was a big Doctor Who fan, and we bought Starlog often, my brother and I. And I remember there being a big debate about should Spock live or die, kind of like uh, Who Shot Jr., which was you know a mm. Dallas controversy at the time. It was a really, uh, and of course, you know what fan is going to say, yeah. He should die. No, it was uh, it was an outrage in the community that they were going to kill Aspot. Well, the death during the Kobayashi Maru was actually there to fake out audiences to get the death over with, so that they'd forget about it when the actual death came. Ah, but call. I think that it's actually very well done. And let me tell you something. I saw this movie other than that time I walked out of theaters. The first time I saw this movie to watch it was in 88 and I'd already seen part four. So I knew Spock came back to life. But that scene was so moving and touching with him and Kirk that I wept. The 13 year old me wept. And the way it was handled was brilliant with Scotty and McCoy first and then Kirk. And the acting in that scene is phenomenal when you have Scotty and McCoy holding back Kirk, who just wants to go in there and save his friend. Unbelievable. And and look at the intensity of Scotty's face. And he also has another great moment when his nephew passes away earlier in the movie. He has that amazing intensity. You really felt the actors were really seeing their friend die, 
And you don't get to see that kind of acting in a lot of Star Trek movies. It's more lighter fare, and they really played the scene for all it's worth, and you really got to see the acting chops of these three actors, four actors. My only beef with Scotty's scene with his nephew is it's very weird that he brings the corpse up to the bridge well, yeah. rather than brings him to the medic lab. But It's you know. even worse in the original theatrical cut. We all watched the director's cut, and that had some scenes that were only seen on the ABC television broadcast. It was cut out of the actual theatrical print that it was his nephew, so that made it even weirder. Mm. Oh, really? Yeah, really. Oh, that would make no sense why he would carry that gu- Did they have the scene in the, in the med lab later on when... Yep. What? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it yeah. just became random staff member, and you had to read the book to know it was his nephew. Oh, man. I do feel like, yeah, even though that this is one of the more fun, action-packed, exciting Star Treks, there's a real heavy sense about death in here. And, and you're right, it's threaded throughout the script, and lots of characters are dealing with it. The whole Genesis device is, in fact, a metaphor for talking about life-giving and death. And to sum it up, to end it with Spock, losing one of these central characters from the series in this way really was impressive. And it had me thinking, like I said, even though I knew he was coming back, because I have seen... The later ones. Could Star Trek have gone on without Spock? It could have, but I don't think it would have actually maintained what it was. Spock is the fan favorite character. Spock is what everybody, nobody was impersonating Shatner. Everybody was putting on the Vulcan ears and doing the live long and prosperous thing. He was the fan favorite and Could they have tried? Sure, but I don't think it would have worked at all because they would have tried to replace him. They would have done like they were going to do with Star Trek Phase 2 and bring in another Vulcan or something. I mean, they even did that with Star Trek The Next Generation. Instead of a Vulcan, they put in an android, which was kind of the similar problem in reverse. Instead of a Vulcan trying to suppress his feelings, it's an android trying to feel, but it's still the Spock character in spirit. You know what I mean? Absolutely. I do. There's there's something very dramatically satisfying about his struggle. And you're right. I, so I can't imagine how they could have made future movies without finding a way to bring him back into the cast, even though his death is really important to the story and you really do need it to feel everything that the ending of the movie wants you and asks you to feel. Well, let me ask you this. Given that this movie was mostly filmed with the intent of Spock's death being irreversible, was Savick the replacement? Yes. I was going to say that. I was going to suggest that to the table. I think you're absolutely right. I think they brought an extra Vulcan in for that very reason. You don't think that they knew? I mean, come on. The whole remember thing where he was added later. Oh, when when added later after screenings at the end of filming, there were some rewrites because Nimoy said, you know, on the other hand, uh, maybe I'm not as done as I thought I was when I signed that contract. But in the end, all of the scenes with the remember were done without the director's approval. Oh, either at the tail end of shooting or after shooting had completed. The scene of his torpedo landing was done completely after the fact, after all principal photography had been done. All I have to say is it's ironic then that Spock is the one that comes back and Kirstie Alley isn't. But, you know. <laughs> That's a conversation for next time. Yep. I want to bring up, as I did last time, the constant references in Star Trek to what I call modern day stuff in that 19th century and 20th century whatevers. And it actually works 
much better. For example, Kirk is a collector of antiques, and with the themes of old and young and all that kind of stuff, dying and whatnot, it totally works here that McCoy gives him the old-fashioned glasses, which happen to be the exact prescription Kirk needs, but that's okay. You have the old guns on the wall. You have all these antiques in his home. It totally works in this sense. Of all the books in the universe that Khan is stranded with, it's Moby Dick. It's, I thought there was Shakespeare. Paradise Lost. Yeah, Milton. All I know is, I think it's funny that he would be so influenced by Moby Dick and really sees that this plot is about him ensnaring Kirk and finally getting Kirk. Well, anyone that has a passing knowledge of Moby Dick knows that Ahab never got the whale, and maybe you want to pattern yourself after somebody that was actually successful. Spoiler alert for Moby Dick there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, Yeah, well, yeah. But you're absolutely right, Stuart, because Khan's obsession with getting Kirk, even when his first mate warns him over and over again throughout the movie how he doesn't have to do this, how we have a spaceship, we can find someplace else to be, or his first mate is the voice of reason, but this man is obsessed with catching that whale. You're absolutely right. The parallels are all over this movie, and that's obviously Khan's downfall. He was so close to finishing that book when Chekhov showed up. (laughs) (laughs) 15 years, he'd had that staring at him. Yeah. <laughs> Genetically perfect, but reading skills, not so good. Well, they just got a new uh, Genesis video game system. Mm. Uh-huh. See what I did there? Yeah, I did. It's cute. <laughs> <laughs> and the last thing I want to mention is I really like the nebula scene. For all the action in this movie, what was really great about the nebula scene is it was kind of a slow burn, kind of a tense situation. It was kind of a cat and mouse. And it was really fun to see who was going to get the upper hand and how. And so when they finally blast Khan's ship out of the sky, it really was fulfilling. It was really earned. It was really like, yes! This whole sequence was just so... It took its time, but it didn't feel like it was dragging. You know what it reminds me of? Any submarine movie ever. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Perfect analogy, Arnie. Perfect analogy. But that doesn't make it bad, mind you. I love Hunt for Red October and Crimson Tide and all of them. I also think it works for the type of ship the Enterprise is. I mean, it must be so tempting to take the Enterprise and have it start doing these dives and things like Star Wars. But that's not what the Enterprise is. The Enterprise houses 800 people. This thing is a boat. (laughs) And to have it fight in this way, it makes it suspenseful and it makes it action packed. But it's not, you know, going to be doing a trench run anytime soon. So, Arnie, Stewart. Do you recommend Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan? Stuart. I'm happy to say that this is probably the best movie I've ever reviewed for now playing. And it was a (laughs) lot of fun. Had a great time. Arnie. I want to unequivocally state that I recommend this movie to everyone. You don't need anything going in, even though it's a part two. You can come in completely blank going, I've never heard of Star Trek and enjoy this movie. You can come in as a huge Star Trek fan and enjoy this movie. If you enjoy good movies, this is a good movie, and I recommend it unequivocally to everyone. And to mirror what Arnie says, I completely agree. This being my entrance into Star Trek as a young boy, this is the movie that makes me want to watch more Star Trek movies every time they release them. I completely agree with both of you. I highly recommend this one. It's a winner. Check it out if you haven't seen it. If you have seen it, I recommend you watch it again. So this is Brock for now playing. If you like this review, please download our other reviews. You can go to www.nowplayingpodcast.com and you can find 
our episodes of non-Star Trek reviews, as well as our Friday the 13th retrospective series there in the archives section. We will have a new Star Trek episode every week until the release of the new movie in May of 2009. So please come back and download some more. I want to thank Arnie and Stuart for joining me today. Thanks, guys. Thank you. You're welcome. And we'll see you all for The Search for Spock. Live long and prosper. Space. The final frontier. These are the continuing voyages of the starship Enterprise. Their ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds. To seek out new life forms and new civilizations. To boldly go where no man has gone. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Look Back at all of the films in the Star Trek series. Be sure to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com every Friday from now until the release of the new movie May 8th for a new installment in our Trek retrospective. Star Trek and all the Star Trek universe contains is copyright and trademark Paramount Pictures, all rights reserved. Now Playing is not affiliated with Paramount Pictures. Gentlemen, your work today has been outstanding. I tend to recommend you all for promotion in whatever fleet we end up serving. Now Playing is a production of Inganza Media Incorporated, copyright 2009, all rights reserved. This is the actually the first Star Trek score that I bought because I love it so much. The first one is good, but this one, the entire score for me is just fantastic, especially that opening theme. Even though I love the opening theme from the first movie and I love its use for the next generation, the it's really kind of fun. Actually, that was the Wicked Witch of the West, dude. I was going to say, it sounded like the Wicked Witch of the West. I'm just going to stop now because I'm going to embarrass myself even further. James Horner is great, but he did not write the theme to Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yes. Okay.